0: If you'd like to read along with our scripture reading, we're going to take one from the book of 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to begin reading in verse 21 and read down to verse 25. It says, For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example." that you should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. That we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. I'll conclude our reading this morning. We would like to ask you to turn a special attention uh, to verse 23, where we'll take the majority of our thought this morning. Though there's much here, and this excerpt is even kind of a smaller snippet out of a greater context that maybe someday we'll look at, but we want to turn our special attention to verse 23. It says this, Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges Righteously. Our title this morning is drawn from verse 23, when he was reviled, when he was reviled. There are many occasions upon which it seems perhaps prudent to talk about certain subjects. Um, Here recently at Christmas, our nation celebrates and the Western world celebrates the birth of Jesus, though we don't know when it was. It's become an annual holiday that we celebrate, and naturally our attention turns to that at times. Um, when we get into the new year, very often people think of new beginnings, revivals, people think of lost people, homecomings, people think of heaven. variety of situations our minds perhaps naturally gravitate towards, and though it might be wise of us to focus on those topics at those times. It seems like there are two occasions in Scripture where we're not just prudent to remember something, but it seems necessary, maybe even commanded, to think on something. And today what we observe is one of those things. It's not just a part of our service, that we get through our service and at the very end we add this small act of taking a piece of bread and drinking a, little, a few drops of wine. That's not what we're to do, but Jesus taught us, and it was reiterated by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, that when we come for this occasion, we're to remember Him and His death in particular. Now, when we consider His death as... Hopefully, been the case throughout your entire life going to church. You have probably heard a lot of sermons about a lot of things, but I, I pray and hope that you have not heard more preaching about any other topic than about Christ, the cross, and His resurrection. That's what all of this is about. And this morning, as we consider the cross we want to hone in on a particular aspect of Jesus' suffering that is perhaps justifiably neglected in light of all of his suffering. If we remember when Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he was bowed in prayer alone with his Father, the literal weight of the world was placed upon Him. We use that as a figure of speech when we are overwhelmed, when we are stressed. It's no figure of speech to use about Jesus that in the Garden of Gethsemane, all of the pains of humanity, all of the sins of humanity, all of the sufferings that you and I and forthcoming generations for as long as time goes on and as long as time has been prior to Christ, all of the sufferings of people were placed upon Jesus' heart and mind at that time. And it became crushing to Him. It tells us in the very beginning, the first time that we learn about Jesus in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that it would bruise his heel. Speaking of a forthcoming day where a Messiah, a Savior would come, it's said that it would bruise him. And there in the garden we see Jesus beginning to be bruised. His mind overwhelmed to the point that his body cannot handle the weight being placed upon him in those moments that he begins to sweat great drops of blood. We consider and we think about at times, and we have preached on many times, and you have heard and you have studied Christ's physical sufferings. The Bible tells us in prophecy that no man was marred like Jesus. He was so disfigured as a result of his beating, he did not look like a man. That's hard to imagine. The paintings of Jesus and the portrayals of Jesus on the cross pretty much intact with just a little blood dripping down like sweat is a completely inaccurate picture of what Jesus looked like on the cross. He was naked and beaten beyond recognition. More blood than skin perceived by all of us. And so justifiably we consider the weight of sin And the spiritual weight that was placed upon him. We focus upon the physical torments. But this morning we want to consider a different aspect of his suffering. That, though oft overlooked, is notable because he endured them for us. That of words. The words that were directed at Jesus during his suffering. To catalog the extent of suffering that Jesus went through is near impossible to do in one setting. That's how much he suffered. Is two or three hours from now, if we just looked line by line at what he endured. We would be here for hours. Just listing off. Here's what he took upon him. But this scripture tells us of something that is reiterated throughout the scriptures and is actually prophesied about in the Old Testament. That this form of suffering that he endured was noteworthy enough that even Peter the Apostle in recalling or rather in commissioning us as people who would suffer for the sake of Christ. One of the core things that he brings to our remembrance is that we need to expect that people will vilely hate us and speak wrong against us, but that we need to turn our eyes to the example of Jesus Christ who suffered in similar fashion and as it says here, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. That word reviled is an intense spewing of bitterness and hatred. You ever said something to someone in the heat of a moment that you regretted saying and you didn't really mean it? You were trying to win an argument and in the intensity of the moment, you misspoke. You exaggerated the degree of disdain that you might have had for the person or situation. And so you apologize and you say, that was not my intention. Well, this tells us, by using the word revile, that it was not things spoken ill-intended. It was not misspeak, but it was carefully sharpened to pierce and harm. And as we look at those who pierced Jesus not only physically, let us pause for a moment and consider the variety of people who both individually and collectively throughout this experience that Jesus goes through at the end of his life, determined to harm him as much as possible even with their words. Now maybe we say, well that's the least of his suffering and perhaps so. But I want to remind you for a moment of this very simple truth. Words matter. Words matter a lot. The tone of words matter a lot. Let me prove it to you. 50 or 60 years ago, some of you had something mean said to you. Something false said about you. Some remark of a bully. And still, 50 or 60 years later, despite it coming from just a child despite it coming from someone who had a warped understanding or even you knowing now as an adult their malevolent intent, how much has it shaped your life? How much have you gone to put your hand to something and hesitated because you recalled the words or negativity of someone long ago? And passively, your subconscious vomits out to your memory. Remember what they said. And so you stay your hand in fear that those words might be repeated. How many directions of people's lives, when they're on course for a certain direction, that someone who they care about says something in a moment of intense anger and even later retracts the words that they spoke, and yet they were so cutting and it cut so deep that they never salvaged the course of their life forever. Words matter. Words, much more I believe than what we realize, leave an indelible mark on who we are and guide our formation more than what we understand. James taught us, That words in chapter 3 are like poison. Words, he says, are a world of iniquity. They're a fire. They defile the whole body. They're untamable. And they're an unruly evil. And that's in just one few verses when he talks about the tongue. A world of iniquity, he calls it. Jesus and His suffering on the cross was spared no form of suffering. And as we'll see as we go through Matthew 26, and if you have a Bible and you want to look there, we're going to take another reading. We're going to slowly go through parts of Matthew 26. People intentionally inflicted pain on Him through their words. Now listen to me today. People still do that to Jesus. Jesus. And Jesus still suffers as a result of what people say. People still malign his character. People still put words in his mouth and misrepresent his intentions. People still mock. Is it any coincidence, do you think, that one of the vain words that our culture uses when they're frustrated or angry or trying to be vulgar is Jesus Christ? Think of all the people in this very moment. How many millions of people in various languages are muttering as a form of vulgarity, Jesus' name? You think that's on accident? No, it's not on accident. Jesus was reviled, and in that reviling, he suffered Here's what it says in the Psalms. One of the most detailed Psalms about the suffering of Jesus details that very thing in the 22nd Psalm. Here's what it says. All they that see me, laugh me to scorn. They shoot out their lip. They shake their head saying, he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him. Seeing he delighted in him. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. You see, even God felt it necessary to, in prophesying about the sufferings of Jesus Christ, his son, include within that prophecy of about 15 verses. All the suffering that Jesus would go through, and a prominent part of that, were the words that would be levied at him. And the first words that we find in scripture in this last account of Jesus' life are noteworthy. They come from a man who was an avowed friend. Now let me say this for a moment. All words are not equal because it depends on those whom are speaking to you how weighty those words might be. When I was a high school teacher, you have to, after a while, get some thick skin. Because adolescent kids will say a lot of mean things about your appearance and manner of speaking and... All variety of things. And if you have too soft of a conscience or if you're too tender hearted, you're not going to make it. And kids will seize on that. And try to intimidate with their words. And even from the youngest time that I was a teacher, I can remember having the thought, they're just kids. They don't know what they're saying. They don't know what they're doing. Their words Weighed very little. But other people, their words weigh heavily. And so let me ask you what weighs more upon you, somebody who's an avowed enemy or somebody who's a trusted friend? When you learn of a trusted friend who to your face says one thing and then behind your back says another, If you've ever had that happen to you, you've probably never forgotten about it. And it probably still remains a wedge in your relationship with this person to this day. Jesus had a man follow him for years. One who, yes, was entrusted with a carnal responsibility. But was one who spent day after day and night after night witnessing the miracles of Jesus. Perhaps laughing likely enjoying forms of camaraderie with the whole group of men. And the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 26 that he had gone to the stated enemies of Jesus. And if you've been in our Bible studies on Wednesday night, you know, and one of the themes of the book of John is just how malicious and premeditated those Pharisees and those scribes and those men of learning in the Sanhedrin, just how intentional they were in preparing to hurt Jesus. They remembered things he had said a year earlier or perhaps beyond that in order to hold that against him that they might find cause to seize him in the opportune moment. Judas is acquainted with this back and forth. He had witnessed it in Jesus' life. And yet following what we're about to observe, the inaugural Lord's Supper, he leaves the table and he rushes to those people who were Jesus' enemies And he conspires together with them. You would expect that just a betrayal would be enough. And yet the depravity of his own heart led him not only to go and rat out Jesus and where he was at. But to be an actual physical partaker in making sure they apprehend the right man. But notice his words when he gets to Jesus. Very often we, we note in the text that he kissed him. A common greeting during the time even between men. They greet one another. And there are cultures today that still greet one another in that fashion. But he says to him, Hail, Master. The word hail is something that we would say today as a joyful, a glad remark after seeing, think of if you haven't seen somebody for a little bit of while, a little while, and you're thankful to see them. They come to your house for Thanksgiving or for Christmas. It's just a distant relative, and you see them for the first time in a couple months. And you, I'm so glad to see you. There's a an element of rejoicing, both in spirit and in word. And the word "Hail, Master!" He's elevating him as one he reveres and also expressing his happiness in seeing him or rejoicing in seeing him and yet it was those marked words that the people who were conspiring to find him were waiting for to know who to apprehend at his betrayal then he seized and he's taken In the middle of the night, to a place which had been designed to honor God. And in the middle of the night, from what I understand about Jewish law, illegally, they brought him to a court. And they went out and searched for people to lie about him. They couldn't find him having done anything wrong. Have you ever heard the saying that you see what you're looking for? What means is, in any given situation, if you're minded to seeing something, you're likely going to see it. There was a study done a number of years ago of of a, I think it was a European psychologist, and he told people to look for these little intricate details in this video. And so they were looking really closely. And in the middle of the video a man dressed up like a gorilla walks in the middle of the video, stands there for 10 seconds, and walks out. And at the very end of the exercise, they asked, they asked the people, did you see this? And did you see those things you were looking for? And they said, many of them said, yes, I saw that, and I, I saw that minor detail. And then they said, did you see the gorilla? And over 50% of the respondents never saw it. And he was trying to prove you see what you're looking at. What you're trying to look for are the things that you often see. Now, consider for a moment that these men and many of their adherents had been looking for sin in Jesus. They had been setting him up in situations like we spoke of last week in John chapter eight, where they throw this adulterous woman before him and they're waiting for him to make one sentence, to to violate the law in any given way. And despite legal uh, men of of legal understanding, despite crowds of people... taking Jesus' private time, and everyone looking, or so many people, looking for mistakes and sins of Jesus, despite all of the people peering at his life, not one person could they find to testify that he had ever done anything wrong. What a testimony. You definitely couldn't say that about me. Definitely couldn't say that about you. That if they looked at our lives... They would see much wrong. They couldn't find that with Jesus. So finally it says in Matthew chapter 26, at the last, they found two false witnesses. that came and another gospel tells us that their testimony was actually conflicting. So think of the obvious injustice that's being carried out here and Jesus just standing there. And then I want you to pick up something else that these men did to him that are just unthinkable. I didn't notice this until I really got to dwelling on this little part of the text. It says in Matthew 26, if you'll look there, in verse 62, it says this. After these men come forward and give false accusations about Jesus that are obviously conflicting. Notice this little two verses. It said this. And the high priest arose and said unto him, answerest thou nothing? What is it with these witnesses against thee? But Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tellest whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Notice how he speaks to him. Notice the manner in which he is speaking to him. Listen, if you, if you were to go to somebody and perhaps in your own field of expertise or during your own career when you had somebody that was above you or whenever your boss comes around I would, I would guess that the way you speak changes a little bit you speak with more reverence you speak more refined you you use words and terms mister and, and missus and you're polite you go above and beyond in your words to honor them because they're in a position of honor and authority here these men have God in front of them. The God that created them and breathed the very breath of life into them that had come into the world to seek and to save even their souls. And here, false accusations are giving testimony about him and are clearly demonstrating to the world that it was just a kangaroo court and that it was the malevolence of these men that was causing Jesus to be brought before him. And rather than, in the very least, honoring God before them, they do the equivalent of saying, I demand you, answer me now. They get violent. They speak down in a condescending way to Jesus. Remember the song? You've heard the song before, um, Who Am I? It's a more contemporary song, a little bit. It's been out for probably 20 years. And I think this is the song I may be uh, conflating two songs, but there's there's a sense to which when I come into his presence, what will I do? I'm sure if you've been saved by God's grace, and perhaps even if you haven't, the moment you stand before God, what will I do? How will I respond? Will I rejoice? Will I fall to my knees in humble acknowledgement of His greatness? And perhaps we'll have one universal response. Perhaps, according to our personalities, we'll respond differently. But I cannot imagine coming into the presence of God. And as very often noted today, when people don't understand things about why things happen in their life, I'm going to demand God tell me this. I can assure you that whenever somebody stands before God they will not adjure him to answer them he's been condescend to god that just scares me thinking about it that someone some piece of dirt like you and i someone created and sustained by him would demand of him anything and yet they do. In the midst of all this, there's a back story going on. Right, the main story is Jesus. But if the betrayal of Judas wasn't enough, and if the condescending attitude of these men wasn't enough, there's also something else going on with words, and that is his closest friend. Now again, let's let's. Let's get to the detail here. We all have variety of friendships, right? Like you might say of somebody, they're my acquaintance. You might say of someone, yes, that's my friend. And then you might say of someone else, that's my best friend. Someone who, in the moments of deepest despair, in the moments of, you've shared things with them, you don't with anybody. That's Peter. Peter's not a Judas friend. He's not a one of the other 12 friends. He's the friend. And while the most crucial moments of Jesus' life are playing out, even though it had been predicted predicted by Jesus that he would betray him, or that he would deny him, rather, People are beginning to look at him and say, you speak like him and you you look like him. And we recognize that you've been around him. We know that you are. And he again denies. And he again denies. And then as I've often remarked in verse 74, he says this. Then began he to curse and swear, saying, I know not the man. Now notice what he actually says. He doesn't just say, yes, I know him, but I don't agree with him. He doesn't say, I was wrong for following him all those years. No, he takes it to a whole further level. How much more harmful as a friend could it get than when you're in your most desperate hour, not only claim to not agree with what you're doing, but take it even a step further and say, I don't even know you. And when people insist that you do, you start to curse in denial. Of who they are. Jesus was aware of that. In that moment Jesus was aware of it. The Bible tells us that. Because after it happened. And the cock crowed. He looked at him. That look. Why was it? Over words. If you've ever had harsh words spoken to you. That broke you. You probably had a look. Don't you? A piercing. There, there's, the human heart is so complex, we can have so many emotions going on at once and not be able to summarize them up in one word. Pain. Hurt. I could go on and on with words that the look portrays. Shock. Stunned. Disappointment. They just... He looks at him, and Peter goes out and weeps because of his words, and Jesus endured it for us, and yet the words didn't stop. They continue, and they get worse, and now there's more people to echo them. He's brought before another judge, to simplify it. And this judge has real power. He can actually do something. You see, the, the first judge was kind of like the judge of public opinion amongst their group. Right? It may be something that we would do. We have a group of friends, and somebody violates a norm, we bring to our, our friend leader, our group friend leader, and, and we have a big discussion, or maybe the family leader, and we... We discuss it. And to get to the family leader, to get to the patriarch or the matriarch of the house, to know about the various interplay that's going wrong, it takes a pretty significant event. And so there's a sense to which it was a pretty big deal that they bring him before the Sanhedrin. But it's a really big deal when they appeal to the next level. Because this guy is not just can stigmatize you within a culture and a broader network of people. He can actually have power to hurt you, to do something with your life, legally. And so they bring him before Pilate. And Pilate says a whole lot of words to Jesus. But I want to focus on a few things that the people say to him. If you look in Matthew chapter 27, it says this The governor, speaking of Pilate, after they had asked for Barabbas, and said unto them, Whether of the twain, which of these two men will you that I release unto you? And they said, Barabbas. Now, when I was at a, a high school, uh, on occasion, the high school that I taught at, we would have um, oh, what are they called? Um, pep rallies. We have a pep rally. And the pep rally uh, for you know thirty minutes. They would do little games, and we had about two thousand kids at our school, or two thousand kids and staff at our school. And so, they pull eight or ten kids that had been pre-planned out there, and they would do games and. And whoever won, their group got so many points, and they were awarded some silly trophy, and, and that was it. And it was interesting to watch this, I'll call it a mob of 2,000 kids. And I think unintentionally sometimes more happened there to the heart of kids than what was ever intended. Because when you get these kids out there, and they were participating in certain activities, on occasion, a kid would do a misstep. He would fall awkwardly and embarrassingly. He would fail to achieve whatever the game had set before him. And it was met with 2,000 kids ridiculing, (laughs) laughing. And now it's even worse today. What compounds the problem a thousand times over is the video that recorded that plays now a thousand times over every day to remind What has transpired? And at times they would put on when they would fail. Or perhaps another kid was being elevated and lifted up. And their name was being chanted and they were being heralded as the one who won. And the humor or the snickering that was at the the, the consequence of the other kid. You could see this attempt to mask some very powerful feelings. And I wonder with Jesus, as he comes before the crowd, knowing his fate already, but hearing it being sealed, and to the degree that it was that Pilate finds the most vile man he possibly can to put before the Jews, that they might decide who ought to be released. And the crowd begins to cry out, Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. Any hope of escaping pain and the crucible of suffering that he was about to endure is gone his fate is sealed and Pilate, what I believe in this moment, though history doesn't support this to some degree a well intentioned man says well then what do I do with him? and what are the next words that they cry out to him? crucify him not put him to death not throw him in prison the most torturous pain you could inflict upon a human being that of crucifixion now take just pause for a moment i know that his spiritual and physical suffering was was much greater than what he's hearing But imagine the pain that you're going to feel when the people you came to die for are crying for your crucifixion. The people you've come to save, the people whom you love, are now the ones turning on you with malicious tongues to hurt you. They cried out, crucified him. I want to give you one more thing that they did when he was on the cross. This is a very... I don't know, it, it put it in a different perspective. He's hanging on the cross. From what I understand, there's two possible places that he could have been hung on the cross. One of them, it is believed, was a main thoroughfare or main road into Jerusalem. And so traffic was really high in this area. So don't think of Jesus out in a place like where we're at, in a cemetery where it's you know, protected from many people who pass by. Think of 231 in Bowling Green. People are coming and going Quickly. That's where Jesus some believe were hung, was hung. And as people are walking by, recognizing or seeing and hearing what's going on, they begin to wag their heads. And they say, "Aha!" That's actually prophesied in scripture. Aha! You that said you would build the temple, you would tear down the temple and build it in 3 days. Will God not deliver you? You said you could save others. Why not come down yourself? Mocking and laughing at him. All the while, Jesus having the power to do it. But as the Bible says, he lays it down. Mark 15, 29 tells us that. They cried out, aha. They laughed, scorned, and ridiculed him. Jesus suffered that for us. Now let's ask one more question and we'll be done this morning. How did he respond to those words? It was interesting, I was reading this book, actually just yesterday, and uh, it was, it was uh, Viktor Frankl, you may have heard him before, he was a neuroscientist who survived Auschwitz during World War II. And so he details his account of his suffering. And as he's describing his suffering, I couldn't help but just jumped out at me yesterday, and it fits perfectly with, with this text and this thought. It said he had described all of the humiliating and, and depriving things that he had gone through in the concentration camp, and he's trying to give you, within reason, a, a sequence of events in chronological order. And he comes to this place where he had been at the camp for months and he had experienced what you would think was every form of humiliation a person possibly can, and he's talking about the way it affects your mind and, and the way it affects your behavior, and and it's just a harrowing account of what goes on. And there's this minor account where he says, "This, I had been beat, I had been whipped, I had been stripped of everything, I had been tattooed, I had no longer had a name. They didn't care about my profession. I had been tattooed with this number, and everybody refers to it as a number." I had been literally stripped of everything, and on top of that, been persecuted in unimaginable ways. And there was a day when I was working out on the railroads where a a man came up, and he made a false accusation about my character. And he says, of everything that I had suffered, nothing stirred up my anger to respond like this man who made a false accusation about my character. And I was compelled, even if it led to my death, for just a moment to use my words to defend myself. Because essentially the man had gone too far. I found that so fascinating that we can go through all number of more severe torments, but sometimes what is most difficult is what the book of James says, that we can tame an ox, we can tame the greatest animals in the world, but sometimes when people press us too far, our words, we cannot stop, or we do not stop. And so Jesus has gone through all of this physical torment. He's been falsely accused. He's been condescended to. He's been laughed at and scorned in front of all these people. And what does the Bible tell us that he does? He reviles not again and he threatens not. If that's where Jesus' response stopped, would that not be miraculous in and of itself? You ever seen somebody taunted? And they just remain still? And you think, if somebody said that to me, I would. Do you ever get that form of relief? And it's sinful relief when you respond in anger to somebody who said something about you? The Bible says Jesus was brought as a sheep before shears. He was found dumb, inaudible. He didn't respond. Why? Well, Jesus may be able to argue himself out of it. Maybe Jesus could have condemned those men like he did that Pharisees that brought the woman before him. But Peter tells us it's for an example for us. But the story continues because when he does speak, he doesn't speak words to weasel out of the impending pain. He speaks truth. Have you ever been in a situation where speaking truth was the hardest thing to speak in the moment? Everyone in the room is on one side, and there's tension. And you know that if you say something, problems are going to incur. And yet you feel a deep conviction within. This is not right and not true. Most people refuse to speak. But when he's standing before Pilate and Pilate says, why won't you speak? I have the power of your life in my hands. Jesus looks dead at Pilate in that broken and beaten and chained up sense and looks at him and says, you have no power except the power that God has given to you. Probably not the first thing that would lead to your release. What do you think? But oh, so powerful and true. You see, I believe in those moments, Jesus' words was intended for Pilate's soul. Just like Pilate's wife's dream was intended for the salvaging and the saving of Pilate's soul. And so Jesus, not being mindful of how his words may impact and exacerbate his own problem, but loving someone else, he speaks words of conviction to a man who certainly needed it. And yet, Jesus' words. I don't think you could invent Jesus if you tried. People say, Jesus just a made-up man. How can you make this up? How could the human mind conceive of someone so incredibly wise and perfect? He's being drugged to the cross. In one sense of the word, I say that not literally. These women are following him and weeping. Remember, they're, they're crying. I bet that was a common trait, but I I bet it was a lot more with Jesus. That's just my guess. And Jesus looks at them and says, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. And he told them of this day of destruction, a literal day of destruction that was coming to Jerusalem. Just a few years after that. And he spoke words of warning. Finally, I'll conclude with the words of Jesus by saying this. Other things I could talk about, but I want to to skip to the end this morning and get to the ordinance that we're going to observe. There's a reason why Jesus' encounter on the cross with that thief is always noted. In that short interaction, so much happens that is so pure and rich. All these things, all this vitriol has been poured out unabated at any moment with relief. And Jesus is hanging. And you think about if breathing is hard on the cross, and you've heard the physical description of of how torturous a cross is and what you have to do to be able to even breathe. Think about speaking, let alone to a man who had joined the chorus of men mocking you. And Jesus looks to him and extends forgiveness. This day thou shalt be with me in paradise. When he was reviled, He reviled not again. As we commemorate this day, I think for those of you, I think most of you know, but in case you don't, this ordinance that we observe, we take bread, but it's not any kind of bread, it's unleavened bread. And it's this representation of Jesus' body which was given for us. It's unleavened because leaven causes dough to rise, And this isn't. This is, frankly doesn't taste very good. The leaven throughout Scripture is a representation of sin. And so we come and we take of this bread that has no leaven. And Jesus says, when you do, remember my suffering. Remember my body that was broken for you. When you partake of the fruit of the vine. And as is common when we step to the Lord's table, it's bitter. Doesn't taste good. You don't want more. It's to remember that when blood is spilled, it is at a bitter cost of pain. And yet, how much more sacred and holy is Jesus' blood that was shed for us? We're to remember his suffering when we come to the Lord's table. And that he endured it for us. Because there was a place of suffering prepared for the devil and his angels that we were destined for. But because he suffered in our stead, those of us this morning that partake in this, it's not this that allows us to miss that suffering. But we can forego that suffering eternally. To me, the Lord's Supper is, I think we've timed it about right, it's a crescendo. You know, music, a crescendo is when things are getting louder. And the cross, his death, is the crescendoing of God's story. There's another musical term called a fortissimo. It's the loudest. We reach that on the resurrection day. So I've always gone to the Lord's table knowing I'm supposed to remember his suffering. And yet down deep in my heart, I'm rejoicing. I'm thankful. I'm thankful. Thankful that he suffered in my stead in every way. I pray this morning that God would help us to be mindful of this and to be grateful of what Jesus endured, even if the words thrown at him were the lightest of all of his suffering. Um, That's our message this morning, and I hope that it will be of some good to your heart.